verses 1 to 13, um, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, but this reading comes from Matthew's account of it. It's the same. We are familiar with Jesus being led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And uh, this is uh, from a Lenten journey uh, by Brian Zahn called The Unvarnished Jesus. Uh, but if you'll allow me, I'm just going to read it, okay? And then I will go straight into the message of the morning uh, out of Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Again, familiar with those passages of Jesus being tempted by the devil. If you want to follow in Luke 4, uh, that's where I'll be going here in just a few moments. But I'm going to begin this morning with this reading. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Prior to his public ministry, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness in prayer and fasting. Now, let me back up for a moment and give us, point out that Luke gives us the account that prior to Jesus being led by the Holy Spirit that into the wilderness, that it's also there that he is baptized, and in his baptism, he hears the proclamation of his Father, this is my beloved Son. So, prior to Jesus' public ministry, during uh, the time he is tempted by the devil, but how did the devil come to Jesus? Did he come wearing a red suit, sporting horns and a forked tail, carrying a pitchfork? Did he say, hey, I'm the devil. I'm here to tempt you. Let's begin. Of course not. The devil came to Jesus the same way that he comes to us, disguised in our thoughts. As Jesus considered the course of his ministry, the devil tempted him to compromise the integrity of his mission. Again, let's not miss this, that his temptation was literally to fulfill. The devil's temptation to Jesus is, let's fulfill your calling in your own strength. Jesus couldn't be tempted to overt evil, so the devil tempts him in the trilogy of good ideas. The three good ideas suggested by the devil were feed everyone, persuade everyone, liberate everyone. Who could disagree with those ideas? They seem like good ideas, but there's the devil lurking in those good ideas. A devil that Jesus discerned. The first temptation, feed everyone, but forget God. This is a temptation to make the kingdom of God solely about social justice. Yes, Jesus will multiply loaves and fishes and feed the hungry, but he will say, eat my flesh, drink my blood. We cannot achieve the second commandment to love our neighbors ourselves if we bypass the first commandment to love God with all of our heart. The second temptation, persuade everyone and thereby eliminate faith. This is the temptation to prove God empirically, either by miracles or by science, thus removing the need for faith. The capacity to believe or doubt is what creates space for us to be free and authentic beings and not mere robots controlled by God. As Frederick Buckner says, if there's no room for doubt, there is no room for me. The third temptation, 
the most subtle of all, liberate everyone. Kill the bad guys. Wait, this is almost a little too literal, isn't it? The temptation to bypass the cross and seize Caesar's sword. The third idea, it, it seems like a good one. The temptation to reach for the ring of power, the one to rule them all, the one that will find them, the one that will bring them all, and all darkness bind them. This is the temptation to justify the means by the end. This is the temptation to justify our own strength and our own power, but Jesus understands that the means are not the end in the process of becoming. Jesus perceived that to justify violent means by an imagined good is to worship the devil. The unvarnished Jesus cannot be empirically proven or reduced to a spokesperson for a proved ism. That's a big sentence. Jesus will not be the poster boy for our left-wing activism or our right-wing militarism. Jesus has his own agenda. It's just, it's peaceable, but first and foremost, it worships God. Lord Jesus, you are the wisdom of God. Lead us not into the realm of temptation, but deliver us from the evil of the devil's good ideas. Jesus, you are the word of God by whom we overcome the evil one. Amen? Amen and amen. I want to begin this morning as we begin this first Sunday in Lent, and I'm going to be speaking here out of Luke chapter 4. And the title I've given the message is, Who is That? Now, about a month ago, um, I had the, the opportunity again and a real privilege to spend time with my siblings in Florida. Uh, bless God, I've got a family that believes that that's a wonderful thing to do in February, and they make it work so that I can be there, okay? I.e., they actually make it happen so I can come. This year, though, we were joined on one of those days by two of my cousins that I have not seen for 15 years. I haven't seen them for 15 years. Uh, my siblings hadn't seen them for about seven. Um, two first cousins, they hadn't been out of Canada for the last two years because of the pandemic. And they happened to be in Florida. And we said, hey, let's get together. And so the night before, now one of them literally drove three hours just to hang out with us. This is, you know, these are Bowers, Dutch people. They like being together, okay? Um, so the night before, though, my older sister pulls out a photo album. And, and, and she's... Now, it's kind of fun looking at this photo album of old pictures of me when we lived in Missouri. And at that time, I really actually had a head of hair. I have pictures to document that, but it, it was there. And then there was this photo. Do you have that one up there? Okay, there it is. Um, this, this, this photo, my sister pulls it out, and... and it was just fascinating as she pulls out all these memories and we're looking at them, but then she pointed to this picture and see on this side of the picture is my dad and my mom, Cor and Yanni Bowers. But then on the opposite side of the picture, my sister pointed at it and said, 
well, first, you know, when was this? And then she pointed to this man, this older man in the picture and said, who is that? Now, I had an unusual moment. I am the seventh out of eight. So for me, most of the time when we're going through old photos, my siblings are telling me that's who this is. But in a rare moment of genius, I said, oh, I know who that is, and I know what that was. The year was 1976, and my parents, for the first time together, my mother had been back to Holland to be in her sister's wedding uh, in the early 60s, uh, excuse me, 1960, and then I believe one other time that she may have gone back, but it was the first time that my father had been back to Holland and the first time they had been back together since they got on the boat July of 1950. 26 years, this was their first night. That man was my mother's stepbrother. His name is Tibba. Now, to understand this relationship, let me try my best, if I can. My mother's father died when she was three years old. I think I probably shared with you that we understand him that he probably was third generation Jew. He thankfully was not alive during the, during, during the whole occupation of the Third Reich in Holland, but it was her stepbrother who was an active part of her life, and here's why, because her father had been married for many years, and then his wife passed, and then he married a much younger woman. In his second marriage, he had two daughters. One was Yanni, my mom, and Kre. two girls. And they lived together, and they kept the little shop that my uh, grandfather had started. It was a little clothing shop, but across the road... His son started another shop, and it was a store that was, and he cared for that store, but also helped to care for his stepmother. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me? As well as his stepsisters, and he became like a father and was, in essence, like a father to them. And so it was a joyful moment for my mother especially, who at this point was struggling already with illness. You can kind of see that in that picture. It's a bit evident, but the joy on their faces is unmistakable. So my sister said, who is that? I said, oh, that's, that's Tibba. And what was so remarkable about that night was that it was a gift to my mom especially and to my dad. Because not only did they have that opportunity to connect, because, but, but two days later, Tibba passed, and they attended the funeral while they were there. And they felt like it was such a gracious gift of God to them. Now, Tibba, oh, wait a second. Remember that visit from my cousins? Tibba had some children. This is where it's really going to get confusing, and if you try to figure this out, I'll have to really sit down with you. He had some children who are now my mom's cousins. One of them married my dad's sister on the same day that my dad and my mother got married. Three siblings were married on the same day. If you can track that, try. Her cousin, her cousin would become my uncle. 
his children were the ones that came to visit us. And so as I looked at them and said, okay, let me try to figure this out. So Tibba was my mom's half-sister, but your grandfather, oh, dear, my brain is hurting to try to figure this out. It's, it's fascinating, though, isn't it? Have you ever had those moments where you're trying to figure out who is that? Or, or maybe many years have passed by. See, life can be like that. You run into someone or you see a family member and you're secretly wondering what you don't want to say out loud in your head, but you're saying, who is that? I'm not really sure, but I'm pretty sure I should know. Right? You ever had that moment? That's why you wear name tags at reunions. But here's what's even more difficult for us is when we experience this in our own life, And we look in the mirror, and the disorienting, disfiguring, distorting moments of disappointment, of pain, and difficulty have caused enough insecurities and doubts that when we look in the mirror, we begin to ask the question that's creeping in our hearts. Who is that? And we maybe even begin to believe the accusations of those insecurities. You see, being able to answer that question, who is that? Now, for my sister, it was not just, you know, trying to sort out the complexity of a family tree, which we literally did, by the way, Hammer. We sat down with a piece of paper. My son was there, and he said, this is, this, this requires a pen and paper to figure this out, okay? But it was knowing about my own identity. So it's more than just information, but it's grasping a story that has formed our story and that we've become a part of. Are you tracking me with me? Yes? Just say yes. Hopefully, yes. Okay. In our text, I, I really appreciate what Brian Zahn talked about. Jesus is in the desert, and he's being assailed by the adversary, inviting him, fulfill your calling in your own strength. And yet what I want you to see is this. See, oftentimes we look at this text and we interpret it, you know, in a rough way as roughly sounding something like this. Jesus shows us how to overcome temptation by just saying no. In fact, I would say that I've heard sermons, I perhaps have even preached some that might even sound a little bit like that, but some that, that have, carry with it. You know, if you just have the right scriptures in your head, you can just say no to temptation. Interesting, when you capture that inside of the traditional context of Lent, what are you giving up? For Lent. Why do we do that? What's that all about? Well, I mean, the, the, historically, it's about trying to confront our own weakness, to, to recognize our own frailty. Um, you know, my non-liturgical background I grew up in, it was like, yay, there's fish fries and more fish available for all those people who don't want to eat meat. 
That was supposed to be a joke. Sorry you missed it. Jesus' temptation, though, I want you to see this. It was more than just saying no. So here's what I want to say to us this morning. What if, as we come into this Lent season, it's more than just saying no? What if we begin to explore our own frailty in a different way? What if, what if the temptations of Jesus were more than just a yes or no question? What if our temptations are more than just a yes or no question? What if it's more than just a pop quiz of Jesus coming, you know, of, of God on our life? What if it's more than just uh, figuring out how God is keeping score? What if, what if we begin to, to treat and to, to begin to sense, you know, this sense of frailty in my life, this struggle with temptation, maybe this is about a diagnosis of what's going on in my heart. You see, after Jesus' baptism, he enters into the wilderness. At the baptism of Jesus, what does he hear? What's echoing in his ears? This is my beloved son, my chosen one. Then he goes into the desert. You see, his identity and relationship with his father, follow this. His identity and relationship with his father were given to him before he went, before he ever went or responded or faced temptations he hears the declaration of his father's heart. Now, this is a powerful statement. Listen to this. Whether Jesus said yes or no to temptation did not determine his sonship, his belovedness, or what God said was that he was well pleased. They were already a reality. Did you follow what I that, Because this is a really, really important point. The father says, this is what's true. He's not proving it when he goes into the desert. He couldn't earn them or lose them. This is the good news of the message this morning. Neither can we. Hopefully there's more than one amen, right? Neither can we. The temptations and struggles in our desert don't determine how God sees us. Now, Jesus is in the desert. His temptations don't determine how God sees him, but rather, watch this, how Jesus chooses to see himself. When he looks in the mirror to answer the question, the devil's coming to pull up a, a mirror. If you are the Son of God, who are you? I'm the beloved of the Father. You see, when he's asked that question, the revelation of the Father reaches more than just his ears, but his heart. It was more a question of Jesus knowing himself and knowing for himself what the Father had proclaimed over him. It was more than just him saying no. These are words that went beyond his ears. It went down to his heart. He surrendered to what was true. He was not just the Son of God, but the beloved Son of God. He surrendered to the Father's belovedness, and that unveiled grace in the moment. To do more than just say no to, to sin that was being put in front of him, temptation. Watch this. If you follow the rest of the text, we don't have time to go into it. 
but, you know, he's baptized. He goes into the wilderness, but in Luke 4, he goes back to Galilee, to his hometown, in the synagogue, and then he proclaims the spirit of the sovereign Lord's on me to proclaim freedom to the captive. That's who I am. He surrendered to his belovedness. And he's saying, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is living not from words that he's heard with his ears, but what he's surrendered to in his heart, his belovedness before the Father. The good news that we proclaim this morning, beloved, as we begin this season of Lent, are not lessons in how well we can say no to temptation, but how we answer this question in our own wilderness. When the mirror is placed in front of us, who is that? the beloved of God, participating in the story of God on the earth. That's who I am. Any other definition apart from our true identity as the beloved is, listen to this, an utter illusion. Brennan Manning, in his book Abba's Child, said it this way. How about we quit keeping score altogether and surrender yourself with all your sinfulness to God who sees neither score nor the scorekeeper but only his child redeemed by Christ. Any other definition, beloved, than our true identity as the beloved of God is an illusion in this text. Jesus encounters these Temptation, the three specific temptations, by the way. Again, I'm not going to try to develop this fully. I just want to touch on that one point today about our belovedness, okay? The temptations, Brian Zahn talks about them. They're security, significance, and belonging. They're the very things that God gave us in the garden. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, they're the very place that, that Jesus is intending to restore man back to, and the devil comes to tempt Jesus, who is actually really hungry. He actually sees the power systems of the world in front of him, and he's invited to prove his worth. And his response is more than just saying no, but it's surrendering to his identity as the beloved. The wilderness temptations, beloved, called forth in Jesus the confirmation of his identity, and it was his identity by which he overcomes those temptations. I would agree with one person who said, interestingly, the devil unwittingly convinces Jesus into knowing and experiencing the truth about himself, his sonship, his belovedness, and the Father's pleasure. His identity and his relationship were no longer words spoken from heaven, but a reality that he experienced in the wilderness, a reality that he's soon going to speak over the people of Nazareth. That self-understanding was in part the result of the temptations that he faced. What if, beloved, in this season, we rethink, what am I giving up? How do I deal with temptation? Now, to be clear, I am not suggesting that we just give in, but that we refocus. One person put it this way. We tend to focus on the person, thing, situation that's tempting us. But it's really about us. Our temptation 
says more about what's going on within us than what's happening around us. Temptation is a choice, and, and it's more about our identity and our direction. So what if we compassionately dealt with ourselves in such a way like that, 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 that simply just begin to ask questions? What are you saying to me? Maybe we begin to recognize that, that I'm being asked the same question that Jesus was asked. Are you really the son of God's beloved child? Who are you? Well, I'm going to prove it. But wait, 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 wait. Let, let me proclaim some truth over us. Before that question was ever asked in your head, in your heart, God already said how he felt about you. Before the foundation of the world, he chose you to love you. He loved me and he chose me and he cherishes me before I ever encountered that. How about if I just surrendered to that? How about if I move from saying no and surrendering to my belovedness when I'm answering this question? Who is that? So how do I do that? Well, a couple of, I just want to say a few practical things. You know, I, I use the word beginning to deal with ourselves compassionately, meaning what, what if we just lovingly, tenderly pay attention to the things that make our heart race? I got cut off. That's, ooh, stupid was about what I was ready to say. Jerk. Oh, I've never said that. This is being recorded, unfortunately. Okay? Ugh, can't believe that. What distraction, I mean, what pushes our buttons? What circumstance bring a response from me other than what we'd like for it to be? Now, here's where we begin. That's actually the opportunity to discover what's going on in you. That's actually when the mirror is being held up right there. That's actually the place when we say, oh, Jesus, I long for you to come and rescue me. He's like, here it is, right here. What? I want that to go away. Then I can be at peace. No, actually, there's a mirror being held up right now, and, and the question is, who are you? What are you going to surrender to? And here's the good news. Regardless of what you see within you. I mean, becoming comfortable with saying, I think I'm just an angry person. I don't like saying that out loud. I think there's times I just tend to fall into this ditch called anger. Listen to me. It's information. It's a flinch. Let, let me give it the right parallel. When you are, uh, let's see here. I am, uh, I'm putting up, you know, we discovered these, these uh, what, what are those berries out in the front patch, babe? The wild raspberries? No, blackberry? What? Black raspberries. Denise loves them. Right. So I'm like, going to go out there and try to help her. Um, do, you, do you know what that's going to do if you try to tame, if you try to tame wild black raspberries, your hands are going to hurt. Your body is going to hurt because they have 
little and not so little, little thorns all around. And all of a sudden, ah, yeah, oh, wow, that's for sure one. Try to avoid that. Now, my, what I'm trying to say is this. The flinching was there to, sh to, to make you aware of the fact that there is a thorn sticking in you, right? That flinching in us is not the final judgment. It's not the conclusion. It's not God's grade on your final exam. It's just the Holy Spirit revealing something about ourselves. Oh, I'm flinching. So, it's not easy. It's not pain-free. No, but it's, wait, wait, wait. Oh, wait, there's a mirror being held up to which I can answer this question. Who are you? I'm being asked, who am I? Oh, God, who am I? I was reading this on Ash Wednesday uh, from another friend. And he's coming face-to-face -face with his own weakness and, um, and, Specifically, what he was writing about, watch this, how he, what, what he identifies. He's writing this long email to a friend, and I'm just going to jump right into He put this on a public post so I can share it. Uh, the temptation, especially the temptation to use power to get people to want Jesus and do certain things that are good. Did you notice what he just said? So he's a pastor, and he's trying to say, this is good for you. Let me try, I'm going to convince you. I'm going to use my power to convince you. And what he's realizing and reckoning with is, oh, this isn't, this isn't God's economy. And so he said, I read this long email to my friend and I sighed so much of what I expressed to him about the battles that so easily surface around provision, power, and popularity are still the same ones that I'm battling with today. In fact, there's one parenthetical line in that email that stopped me in my tracks. I sat and I stared at the screen and just whispered, Jesus, have mercy on me. I am only made of dust. Then this is his response. He said, it's true. Ash Wednesday is a day to remember that we're far more fragile, far more easily tempted than we realize. But rather than suppress that reality, we can sink into it by grace. I think that's what Ash Wednesday is for, not fighting that we are dust, but accepting it and seeking grace from the Father just as Jesus did when he was tempted. You guys follow what I was saying there? Lord, I'm discovering, I'm flinching, and there's a thorn. It's painful. Oh, yeah, that's really true. But your grace is greater. Yes? Amen. So, again, I, I shared earlier, for years I interpreted this te teaching of Jesus, you know, say no, have the right scriptures, fight harder. Jesus didn't say no and turn away. He lived as one settled deep in his being what his father just said. So, in this season of Lent, my invitation, would you join me that, that, that we would answer this question when it's held up in front of us, and it will be. Who is that? Who are you? I want to read again from Brennan Manning's book, Abba, Father. And I just can't, I can't add words any better, okay? So when asked this question, Jesus says, Acknowledge and accept who I want to be for you. 
a savior of boundless compassion, infinite patience, unbearable forgiveness, and love that keeps no score of wrongs. Quit projecting onto me your feelings about yourself. At this moment, your life is a bruised reed, and I will not crush it. A smoldering wick, and I will not quench it. You are in a safe place. The love of the good news that we're proclaiming in this season of Lent is not just saying no to temptation, but how we answer this question. Who is that? The beloved of God, participating in the story of God on the earth. Any other definition apart from our true identity as the beloved is an utter illusion. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to respond with me to this message. First, a prayer that I want to invite us to pray together. And then I want to bring us to the table. If you're on the call, if you have something there to share in communion, we invite you to grab that right now. But let's stand together. Would you pray this prayer with me? And before we pray this prayer, I just want to point this out. God of the wilderness and the water, meaning that the Father is the same Father, the one who said, that's my beloved Son. He's not changed his mind when his Son was in the wilderness. Okay? Ready? So let's pray this. Because there's some of us that are, I believe, in a real, actual wilderness moments. Ready? God of wilderness and water, your Son was baptized and tempted as we are. Guide us through this season that we may not avoid struggle, but open ourselves to blessing through the cleansing depths of repentance and the heaven-rending words of the Spirit. Amen. And beloved, the heaven-rending words of the Spirit proclaim our belovedness as His children.